Father, we thank you for the capability to gather this morning. Though it's, it's not the way that we might necessarily choose to gather, being apart from one another, we recognize the necessity of the time we live in. We pray for those who are outside right now, serving in various capacities because they have to, for our healthcare workers, for all those who are supplying our needs. May you bless them and strengthen them for the task ahead. We pray now, Father, as we gather to hear your word, that you would strengthen us, inspire us for the week ahead. May you speak by the power of your Holy Spirit through my very imperfect and feeble lips. I ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, good morning again to you, Hillside and Epiphany in New York City. It is such a blessing to be able to be with you today. The word of the Lord endures forever, and indeed I'm reminded of that fact as we gather here this morning to receive that word. I want to distract you for just a little bit from all the things, from the news, from the constant sort of flood of news, and I want to take you back this morning to a, well frankly, a simpler time. The good old days that the old timers sometimes refer to as 2-0-15, otherwise known as 2015. And I want, to, I want to talk to you today about a debate that took place back then. Now, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, any of the presidential debates that were sort of ramping up in, in that time, preparing for the 2016 election, nor am I talking about the various theological debates that you'll see constantly online back then and even still today. No, in fact, I'm talking about a much, much greater debate that took place way back then. I am talking about something known as the Great Dress Debate. Now, some of you who have been on social media for a while will know exactly what I'm talking about. What happened is a picture was released online. This is the picture. Hopefully you can see it clearly through the camera. And the person who posted this picture said, help me figure out what color this dress is. Is it white and gold or blue and black? Now, it clearly, as you can see here, is white and gold. I mean, it's obvious. But there were some, actually a good number of people, that upon seeing that dress said, you're crazy. It's blue and black. It's not white and gold. And the debate raged back and forth. Nations threatened war with one another, and our country was on the brink of civilizational decay. And then the original poster of this picture actually wore the dress out in public. A picture was snapped, and indeed it turned out that the dress was, in fact, blue and black. Now, I'm still a bit of a white and gold truther, but that's a sermon for another time. Uh, so why on earth am I talking to you about this dress? Well, first of all, like I said, I just want to distract you for a bit. But secondly, it's also to illustrate a very important point, a very important spiritual point, and that is it is possible for one to see, but to not really see. It is possible to see, but not really see. 
In fact, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus makes this point for us. As he faces his various theological opponents within and among the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, he often will criticize them for being blind and not seeing the truth. So he does great and grand miracles, and what do they say? Well, he must be empowered by the devil and the demonic forces. He teaches the word of God crystal clear with great accuracy, and they refuse to hear it, calling him a heretic. And so Jesus condemns them for their willful blindness to the truth of God and for the rejection of who Jesus truly is. There may be no story in the Gospels that illustrates this point for us more than the story we're going to look at today, found in John chapter 9. There we meet people that are blind in, well, in one way or another. There we meet people that are indeed spiritually blind, even though they have physical sight. And we also meet people that had not had physical sight that end up seeing. And so, with that being said by way of introduction, let's go ahead and dig right into our story, starting at John 9, verse 1. It reads like this. As Jesus passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, right away, we have to stop right out of the gate. We actually hear a statement that reflects a spiritual blindness of a sort. This time, it doesn't come from the Pharisees, which were the usual culprits, but it's actually coming from Jesus' own disciples, which we know there were quite a few times where they didn't have it all figured out. And this statement is one of those times. And what we see is that one of the characteristics of spiritual blindness reflected in this question they asked is that well, spiritual blindness is often led more by an idea of karma rather than grace. Spirit, spiritual blindness is led by an idea of karma rather than grace. Now, to be fair, the disciples are simply stating a truth that basically was taken for granted back in that time and place. It was really assumed that if someone had a malady, any sort of sickness of any kind, that indeed they or Maybe their parents were the ones responsible because of their sin. That view is essentially what we call karma today. You know, that what goes around comes around. You know, that which you reap, you will sow, etc. Now, I mean, to be fair, we do have to acknowledge that sometimes throughout biblical history, God does indeed punish his people for their sins. And so in that sense, there is this what goes around comes around sort of happening. But the problem with the disciples' statement is that they assume that that is always the case when someone has a malady. And indeed, that's just not true. In fact, most of the time, it's not true. Look at verse 3. Jesus quickly corrects their error. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This isn't because of something they did. Yes, we're in a fallen world, and this is a result of being in a fallen world that someone would have this malady, but he didn't do anything specific to get this. 
nor did his parents. In fact, this is given to him to display the glory of God. In other words, this is given to him that he might become a trophy of God's grace. Now, as much as we confess that to be true, we find ourselves falling into the karma trap all the time today. We assume that if a tragedy comes upon us, whether individually or collectively, something like, say, a virus, it must be because of something we did. Indeed, there's no shortage of preachers that will get on TV and tell you that's the case. Anytime there's a natural disaster in a city or a country, there's somebody there to say it's because of that city or country's various sins and debaucheries. The fact is, though, they have no right to make such declarations. None. And because here's the deal. Unless Jesus specifically revealed that information to them, they are speaking out of ignorance. The fact is, as Jesus points out here, sometimes, sometimes in life, bad things happen so that we're made more dependent upon him and again, become examples of his grace toward us. As the book of Romans says, God works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that's exactly what Jesus will go on to do here. Follow with me at verse 4. Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And here's where it gets a little strange. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This is a very fascinating part of the text. And frankly, I could say so many cool things about for example, the significance of Jesus choosing to use mud to heal this man's eyes. I mean, after all, he's God. He can just speak and it can happen. But, but God, Jesus, is the kind of God that uses things. He uses means in order to bestow grace and healing upon people. That's a wonderful picture of that. I could talk about the significance of the pool of Siloam, especially when we go back to the prophet Isaiah and we see him reference this pool. There's a lot of symbolic significance in this happening right here at that pool. But in order to get that info, you're going to have to text me or Facebook message me later because I just don't have time to go into all of it. What I do have time to declare from this example as this man is healed is that this is a story emphasizing that spiritual vision always is looking to be led by grace. Always is looking instead of asking the question when they come across the person who's sick or has a malady, what did they do? They say instead, what can God do? And even what might God be calling me to do for this person? in need. That's the difference between being led by karma as opposed to grace. In an interview a few years back, the lead singer of U2, Bono, spelled out the difference rather nicely for us. He said, 
You see, at the center of all religions is this idea of karma. You know what I mean. What comes back, what uh, you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics and physical laws, every action is met by an equal or an opposite reaction. Bonnell says, it's, it's clear to me that, that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case, Bono says, is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. Well, of course, the interviewer wants to know all about that, and so he says, I I'd be interested to hear some of those stupid things that you've done. It makes for good copy after all. And Bono responded, that's between me and God. But I'm just telling you, I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. And then listen to what he says here. I am holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am. And I hope I don't have to stand and depend on my own religiosity. And the interviewer from Rolling Stone gives this astonishing response to what Bono has just said. Quote, the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. Wow, I wish I could believe that. Unfortunately, Jesus' blind opponents didn't even wish they could believe in that, but utterly rejected such grace for karma. As we move on, we also see the spiritually blind are guided by legalistic regulations rather than compassionate care of neighbor. Skip on down to verse 13 of our text with me. Quote, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Just that simple. Now, you, you might expect that the room would break out in applause at hearing such an amazing miracle. As, as the blind man will go on to say later, it's never been recorded in human history up to that moment that somebody was healed of their blindness like this, which, in fact, according to the Old Testament narrative, that was true. You would expect that they'd be amazed but no, they've got a different reaction. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And, and there was a division among them, so some, some were beginning to see. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, he said, he is a prophet. Once again, here, Jesus does an incredible miracle of compassion, loosening a man from his oppressive condition. But most of the religious leaders cannot see it. And why? Because, well, they mention it. Because this was done on the Sabbath, ooh, this was a big deal for them. Because they're guided by this legalistic regulation, 
their own self-imposed regulations. There was nothing in the Bible that said you couldn't heal on the Sabbath. They just assumed because that might mean that you would get active, that you shouldn't. And Jesus said, no, 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 you're missing the whole point of the Sabbath. As he says multiple times throughout his ministry, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is the ultimate example of what the Sabbath is about. I'm loosening people's bondage to decay and entropy. Sadly, this sort of legalistic blindness creeps into the church all too easily as well. I don't have to give you the litany of examples, but if you think about it for any length of time, you can probably think of some in your own life. We're prone to making extra-biblical rules, and the more we do that, the less we're prone to be compassionate to our neighbor who doesn't live up to those rules and doesn't look like we want them to look like. One way that we're sort of living with compassionate care instead of legalistic regulations is, well, what we're doing right now. I mean, for the time being, Hillside and Epiphany Church have decided to move our worship gathering online. We don't know how long it's going to be for. We recognize this isn't ideal for the long haul. We recognize that the Bible exhorts us to assemble together and to not forsake the assembly. Thank God that we can do this right now. But for the sake of keeping our friends and neighbors safe, and that really is what this is about, this is the way we've chosen to gather for right now. However, I can see a scenario where if we were to be sort of blinded by just the, the rigidity of the regulation, we need to meet, we need to meet, we need to be together, not having any flexibility, that we could end up doing that and doing more harm to our friends and neighbors. We must remember the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law, which Jesus so often illustrates for us when battling the legalism of his opponents especially on the Sabbath day. The third contrast we see between the spiritually blind and those who see is the spiritually blind are guided by pride rather than humble faith. After a little bit of time, the blind man is brought in for a second cross-examination from the Pharisaical group. We skip on down to verse 24. We, we hear, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. In other words, tell the truth. You're under oath. This is, you're in the court of the law type, type thing. We know that this man is a sinner. They're speaking of Jesus here. And answered, whether he's a sinner, I, I don't know. One thing I, I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, and you can sense the frustration. I, I've told you already, and, and you won't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? I love this little line, this little jab he's got. Do you also want to become his disciples? 
And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And now they're really hot. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Oh, how revealing this moment is in our story. Now we get to the real reason, the real nub for why this group is so opposed to Jesus. It's all over their response to the man. We're disciples of, of Moses. You were born in utter sin, and do you presume to teach one of us? Do you, do you hear the, the pride and contempt that drives their narrative as they interact with this healed man? Yes, that the reason the spiritually blind people in this passage can't see their need for Jesus is because at bottom, they don't believe they needed Jesus at all. They're convinced that they see the world just fine, thank you very much, and anyone, anyone who would question them must be cast out, must be socially distanced from their midst. That's quite a contrast with the once blind man's response to Jesus. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and like he does so often, he goes to him. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you now. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. It is possible to see, but not See, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. In other words, you admit you've seen me do the things that a Messiah can do, but because you still reject, that is your condemnation. What a contrast. No matter how much evidence Jesus gives the spiritually blind Pharisees, they simply refuse to believe that he is their promised Messiah. But the man who had been healed, as soon as he found out, immediately got on his knees and worshipped. So to wrap this up, I have a question. And the question might be somewhat of an obvious one. Which one are you? I think most of us, our natural tendency is simply to declare with 
some sense of enthusiasm. I'm the one who sees Jesus for who he actually is, and I submit to him and worship like this healed man did. After all, I mean, what are we doing here right now if that's not the case, right, folks? I mean, that's our natural response. Yes, I'm on that guy's side. But if I'm honest with you, I still got an old spiritually blind man clinging to me. Even though I love grace so much and I celebrate it as my lifeblood, I can't tell you how easily I fall into the trap of being guided by karma in the way that I view the world and view the things that happen to myself. I'd love to hold myself up to you today as the kind of guy who would never ever fall into legalistic regulations, but if I'm honest with you, I can all too easily fall into the same trap of believing my own little rules for life become the measure and standard for righteousness. And when it comes to pride, I'd love to tell you that I'm the most humble of them all, but of course that would be a very proud statement of mine. In fact, pride rears its ugly head far too often in my life, especially if someone comes to me like this healed man did to the Pharisees, contradicting them, leaving them in a corner where they don't have an argument to defend their point of view. It's way too easy for me to puff out my chest just like the Pharisees did to this man. And I gotta be honest, especially in times of challenge and crisis, like we're going through now, it's easy to be plagued with questions. And that old blind man in me starts to get louder and fight back against this new man with new sight. So what can I do? What can you do when the voice of the old spiritually blind man goes from a whisper to a yell in your ears? All I can tell you is remember, remember, and never let go of the fact that like this once blind man, you too have been washed in the blood of Christ. As Christ applied the mud to the man's eyes to bring healing and new life, so too in the waters of your baptism, Christ applied his death and resurrection to you and declared you to have new life. It is a fact that there he declared you, a blind sinner, to be a saint with 20-20 spiritual vision. When the blind man comes rearing his ugly head, you stand on the promises God has made to you and you don't let go. You simply repeat, as much as possible, as much as necessary in the moment, the words of our man. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. Because it is that vision that will give you the strength to endure and persevere through whatever trials may come your way, no matter what they may be. May God strengthen us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Father, I do ask that that reminder would give us all we need each and every day. No matter what comes our way, no matter how much the voice in the back of our minds wants to nag at us and fill us with doubt and insecurity and fear, may we stand on the promises you've made to us. May we look back to the reality that we are, in fact, 
washed. It's a fact. It happened in objective space and time. And may we find comfort there. Now, Father, we pray humbly and dependently the prayer that our Savior gave us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.